0: I mean, it's, it's been a couple of years since we crossed paths, but how how are you? you looking well. Yeah, so you, Mark, yeah. Well, <laughs> anyone you. down lives on Exmoor, they're going to be well. I've got to say, it's one of the most beautiful places to come to. We were driving down here earlier, and we saw wildlife that I've never seen in my life being just outside of London. What made you choose this part of the world to, to kind of find your home?
1: Yeah, well, about God knows how many years ago, we uh, lived in a basement in Earl's Court uh, with the dustbins, you know, blocking the entrance. But otherwise, you know, it gave give us enough money to move out of London, which we didn't like, uh, to somewhere which was within three hours drive of London for business purposes, mm. you know, expedition, further plans. But that we couldn't hear our neighbor or see anything man-made, Or here, too many aircraft that weren't MOD. Being ex-MOD, I didn't mind them. And uh, Ginny would start farming with Aberdeen Angus and Black Welsh Mountain sheep, which uh, apparently were the only ones that could stand this height above sea level. This is the highest uh, working farm in the southwest at 1,500 feet above sea level. I mean,
0: there's so much that I want to talk about. In the time that we spent together years ago... um... When I was, I was helping a, a friend that you know, Will and Ollie, and I was uh, tour managing and we were driving around the country and you were doing your, your speaking tour and I always uh, remembered so many of these incredible stories that you had and so much that I don't even know where to start. But one good place to start would be your time in the SAS and how that even came about because I'm so intrigued to know about how your kind of mental fortitude has developed from a young age. And that obviously must have been a, quite an experience for you.
1: Yeah, well, I, I um, was born about four months uh, after my dad was killed. He'd come home on leave and I was conceived, basically, but uh, he'd been wounded five times. He was the boss of a Scottish tank regiment, cavalry regiment, Scots Greys, And uh, so I was brought up without knowing him, but on stories from my mum. Uh, and his mum, who was South African, um, my grandmum. And, yeah, so I never ac- actually met him and just learnt about him, and I admired him as my hero as I grew up. And, therefore, I thought I want to be colonel of the regiment like he was at the Battle of Alamein and the landings at Salerno at the bottom of Italy. And, yeah, so that was the one thing I wanted to be. I didn't want to be a farmer or a spy or whatever like a lot of children or vets. Uh, no, and trouble was that when he joined as a young lieutenant, uh, he went to Sandhurst College, but you didn't have to have things called A-levels to get into Sandhurst College. By the time I arrived on the scene, um, you did, because they'd graduated the regiment from horses to tanks. And uh, because I <clears throat> was brought up in South Africa from the age of one to about 12, um, I'm not saying the standards of A-leveling were lower there, but whatever right. the reasons, I couldn't get me A-level, so I couldn't go to Sandhurst. So I signed on for something interesting other than tanks, endless exercises, waiting for the Russians to attack the Soviet army, which in those days, the Cold War, and they never did attack. So the Scottish soldiers got bored and started beating each other up in the <laughs> NAFI instead. And we kept them interested. And your job was to try to derail. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It was called adventure training. Right. And we canoed over all the rivers in Europe. Uh, in the winter, we Langlav skied in Bavaria. Anything to get away from the tank firing ranges. And uh, yeah, so after three years with that, I thought, do something different. The Soviets, who were the enemy, gen- genuinely, we waiting for the Warsaw Pact to attack. And uh, they never did. So I thought, well, we'll have some way of getting at the Soviets where they are trying to take over parts of Arabia at that time. And there won't be just rangers, there'll be for real. And uh, that was uh, going on. But the SAS in Borneo and all over the place. So I thought, well, the SAS uh, don't like cavalry officers. They like infantry or paras or commandos or whatever but might as well try. And I was also very young to be an officer in the SAS at 20 years old. So I took the regular course um, and passed it, but I actually cheated to get on the through the course. And when you, when you say the course, walk
0: me through what that was at the time. At the SAS is, you know, a, uh, a place kind of where stories of heroism's born, everyone's kind of aware of it now. When we rewind the clock back to that point, What was the process involved in?
1: The process was for the people who decided to to let into the SES to do their own particular manpower selection. And that consisted of mental and physical testing. And which was the
0: worst for you, the mental or the physical?
1: They stressed, it's not just brawn, it's brain as well as brawn. Mm. And to me, that meant, oh, good, you can cheat. <laughs> um, Fair enough. so yeah on I passed everything out of uh, 120 applicants they were all chucked out until we were in a very small room and there were probably about 9 of us left out of the total and at that stage the final test they're all physical stuff carrying heavy weights and that and navigating of course in a place with no buildings really and uh, so I was doing fine And on the last test, which is called long drag, that is the final test. And that's where most people get uh, chucked out. You've got to do a certain, I can't remember, maybe 22 miles in a certain time. And uh, you've got to get it right. You do anything wrong or in the swampy areas get slowed down too much. And we got to a place called the Roman Road. It was an old Roman road where I worked out that I wouldn't quite make the time. And uh, I was with uh, a guy called Fleming. The two of us were together. You're not meant to do it as a team, but we did. And uh, whenever the course was being watched through binoculars by SAS staff to see if you're cheating or anything, we knew really where they would be waiting sort of thing. And at one time, Fleming knew a farmer who happened to live near the Roman Road who had a Ford Anglia. And he said for five quid... I'll go and see Joe, and he'll probably take us from one checkpoint to the next one, but we must be careful not to arrive at a checkpoint before one of the other applicants, selection people. Mm. If we suddenly got ahead of them, they would be suspicious. So right. actually, we had to be very careful, and I'm not, not sure... To have the measured
0: cheating. Not yeah,
1: to and idea. I'm not sure whether it was actually advantageous or not, but... Anyway, I did pass. Fleming, for some reason, didn't, even though he arrived at the same time as me. So, did you never, ever did you never didn't figure, figure out why? why. Yeah, right. No. They never said why they failed people, which must be very annoying for being people who are tested and failed.
0: Well, when you're in the SAS going through these processes, it's the case that even if you fail one thing, you're out. And that it's on, on the spot. So, like when you say, if you make a single mistake anywhere through that process, then. You you got.
1: You seem to be out. Every now and again, the sergeant majors who are watching you the whole time will have a sense of humour and they won't fail someone who they think sort of funny but ought to go. And I can remember on one occasion, the Bedford lorry would be dropping all of us from the back. At that stage, there were still 40 or 50 applicants, of which I was just one. You've got a heavy rucksack and you've got a gun to carry. And I got off the lorry. Fines, off you get and then they move off, and someone else next, off you get, and they drop people off at different times to keep them apart. And when I got off, uh, got my rucksack, uh, got out the back, and the lorry didn't move off. Fines? Yes, sir. What? And he said, what have you forgotten? And I said, oh, my gun. I left it on the lorry. Now that is a sacking offence. I bet. He said, Fines. I said, excuse me, sir, but I'm from a tank regiment and we always take our gun with us. You don't have to carry it separate. And that made him laugh. He said, don't you ever do it again. I'll be watching you. So, that you know, they did have a sense of humor. Yeah. And tell me about, um, I don't know even if I should ask you about this,
0: because you told me a story when we were uh, on tour a long time ago. And it was something to do with you having a plan to rob a bank. Yeah, we... we, I don't know if that's something that you're happy to talk about, but it was such a fascinating... I'm not sure
1: I can remember the exact details, but one of the tests had been, in Hereford, how would you rob this particular bank? Is that not... Was that not a strange moment when you're
0: going through that process, you're trying to figure out how to complete these tasks, not make a single mistake, and then someone comes up and says, now you've got to go and rob a bank? Like...
1: No, you have to plan, give us the plans of how you would rob that particular bank. It's still an odd thing to ask There were many, many tests. That one went wrong because the plans that I then wrote out got into the wrong place and they somehow got into the newspapers. And because in my plans of the bank, I didn't put which bank it was, the police got to hear about it and their leave was stopped over the weekend when I planned the bank to be raided in a specific way, and they didn't know which of the Hereford banks it was. So all the banks uh, basically were watched and so on, got into the newspapers, and the SAS realised that it was me. (laughs) Uh, So that became another reason why I was in danger of being sacked. But because they approved of my plans, which I can't remember, I wrote about it afterwards, Mm. um, but I can't remember exactly, And uh, that was looked upon in a funny sort of way. The the blokes got initiative, but uh, what a shame it got into the papers. Yeah. God,
0: I think you told me that you went up to to Birmingham or Manchester to see a friend to go to a cinema or something, and then you left the bag with the plans. There you are.
1: Read my book and it'll tell you
0: what I can't remember. My God. So that must have set you up in such a huge way when it came to obviously leading people. And then um, what happens after your time in the SAS?
1: After the selection course, you get given your berry, which is an honour and your belt. And then you do, and you're not in the SAS yet, your continuation course. You would probably be trained in four different things. Demolition, parachuting, mountaineering, communications. I chose demolition because it seemed more interesting um, or less complicated. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, so I chose demolition and got taught that. You do all the other courses, and one of them is jungle training in Borneo sort of thing. Mm. Um, And then you get into the SAS and join one of the squadrons. And uh, I was about to do uh, jungle training, and the journey from my home in Sussex to say goodbye to mum before the two-month jungle training in Brunei. And that was not all that distant from a place called Chippenham. And uh, some friends of mine had become wine salesmen, Mm. and one of them had been in a village called Castle Coombe, which uh, had just been made Britain's prettiest village by vote. And uh, he, when he was in the pub selling his wine heard that the villagers were not happy with their lovely village being so-called desecrated by 20th-century folks who were making a film in it called Dr. Doolittle. Mm. And um, they were planning, or rather my friend thought, this is very bad, we Mm. must um, let the voice of the villagers be heard so that if they build anything or change the lovely trout stream in the village to a lake for filming, that they'll put it right after so we'll get them some publicity, and he planned how to get them some publicity. And it ended up, and again, if you read my book, the details will be accurate. Um, and checked with the police basically. Um, they uh planned to undam the dammed up bit. So, I'm, I'm joining the dots here. So, they're going to try and get rid of a
0: dam. And you happen to have some experience with explosives,
1: yeah. First, first of all, there was a different plan at the last minute. Um, it changed because uh, William, the, the guy who planned it all, um, discovered that I had quite a lot of demolition kit, which I'd signed out from the army. And um, w- what you learn in the army is to blow up as much as you can using as little as possible. Right. And I was very good at this. So I had a lot left over in the end of every day. <laughs> okay. And my car boot got, you know, filled up with detonators and stuff. Uh, I didn't sign them back in, which I should have done. But I hadn't stolen them. And uh, so, yeah, I was happy to get rid of them in a useful civilian, you know, manner, not criminal. Blowing up civilian property with the army explosives can be described as sort of wrong. Uh, But it seemed to me to be right. Mm -hmm. And uh, the police had been warned um, and they were waiting. But the SAS don't move into a target area by roads. You go across country. Mm -hmm. So they didn't manage to stop us. And uh, I laid all the detonators in the 20th Century Fox equipment. Um, and then the police uh, pounced with their dogs because yes. they'd been waiting. And uh, I, the SS had said, don't depart when dogs are after you except in water. So unlike my friends, I disappeared by the, str- by the waterway, wading. Wow. And they didn't catch me. And I got back to where the car was three miles away in a pub car park. But the police had been told the car numbers. So when I turned up in the car park, they said, "Uh, Captain Fines, is this your car that you're getting into? And I said, yes. Because they'd been waiting in a police minivan in that car park. And um, I had actually at that time got a very old Jaguar, which wouldn't start except on a hill or being towed by one of my friends whose cars were also waiting there. And um, I had actually gone to the police car, the Mini, because I'd seen that they were there, and I said, Officer, excuse me, I've just come back from a pub. Um, would, you mind give me a- would you mind giving me a pull? And they said, Are you Captain Fines?" I said, Yes. They said, Oh, well, I'm afraid we uh, are arresting you. <laughs> um, and I quickly realised that some of the detonators hadn't gone off, and I get brownie points by taking the police and defusing them before they went off. No way. Every way, yeah, I, I, um, 15 years later, because the, the, the Assizes, uh, the SAS threw me out. Mm. Uh, later I was told they threw me out, not because of um, what we'd done, but because I'd been caught. Anyway, the SAS got rid of me and I, um, my own regiment back in Germany wouldn't take me on if I was going to prison. So they waited for the assizes in Chippenham when we were up before the judge. Fifteen years after that, I was lecturing in the Isle of Wight and the people I lectured to said, by the way, in the local hospital is a judge who found you guilty all those years ago and he'd like to see you. He's not very well. So I went to see the judge by his bedside and he was great and he said, you know that if you'd done that, one year later, I would have had to put you in prison for a minimum of seven years. Because in that period, the IRA started blowing up the mainland stuff. So our timing was good. (laughs) You could say that. (laughs) But to answer your question, uh, that is why I was thrown out of the regular SAS and why later, when I wanted big support from the SAS, it was slightly problematic.
0: So we, we're we going to talk about why you needed the support from the, from the SAS again uh, down the line, because at this stage in your life, you find yourself needing kind of a new path. You're out of the SAS. A lot of people who know about your stories and who have read your books um, are going to be really keen to hear about the expedition work that you began to do. But something that like I've always been really curious about is, do you remember how and why you were a person that needed to go and do these things do you remember a period in your time where you sat down and decided that you were going to go and do these expeditions that would fundamentally risk your life to
1: quite a dangerous extent not uh in so many words they're all different conflicting emotions and requirements and results of not having a levels and results of not doing what I'd wanted to do for 18 years, which was like my father. Um, so, no, I, I constantly wanted something different. So when the SAS threw me out, back to my own tank regiment in Germany, I had to spend another year in tanks. And that was just as boring as it always had been. So I still wanted to fight the Soviets, but the, which I would have done with the SAS, but now I had to find another unit and the SAF, the Sultan of Oman's forces, mm-hmm. offered direct armed contact with guerrilla type training, but in Oman, which wasn't something. So I applied to do that. The regiment in Germany said, yeah, OK, apply for that. All you had to do you didn't take a big course like the SAS. You just had two uh, months of learning Arabic um from a Jordanian who spoke different to the air but it didn't really matter. And if you pass, you get a hundred quid. Uh, I was the only one that failed, but I still got sent out. And how, did the, how did you manage to
0: work that one? If you failed, I, I
1: think they were very keen at that time yeah. on getting some British officers who weren't infantry mm. because what, the thing they were looking for out there was a thing called a reconnaissance platoon, mm-hmm. um, which was six open land rovers with machine guns and uh desert awareness and mountain awareness because it was mixed forest country and then dry country and then very wet country and so on and uh, so that sounded pretty good and I got sent out there and completed my eight years. Was there an element of that part of the world that you that you miss
0: because I, I know that you've kind of been all over the globe and when you were in that part of the world you began to uh, and don't hold me on getting the dates correct, but you began to um, hear about uh, and decide to start looking for this lost city. Am I getting my dates roughly? Is that around about the time that you started to discover that?
1: Yeah, one of Tim Landon's intelligence officers was a Bedou, Mm. Nashran bin Sultan. And um, he, at one stage, told me that there was a lost city, the frankincense center of the world, Mm. because where we were was the only place... In the world, basically, where frankincense trees grew. Right. And
0: and what is frankincense? Because I'm I'm not sure. Frankincense
1: in those days, um, for a lot of religions, was when you prayed to your God, Mm. uh, if if you went using expensive incense or sacrifice, um, it was more costly, therefore, than gold. But we're down at the south end of Arabia, Mm. and there's no commercial stuff down there. So you have to go through about 900 miles of desert to north to Saudi Arabia and up to Jerusalem to get into the, in those days, Roman Empire, who were wanting incense. Mm. And it costs more than gold. So, okay, so
0: I'm trying to figure out why did Tim know about this
1: or at least propose that this was... Nashran was the guy that told me about it. Mm. And it would have been in... 1969 that he told me when I was fighting the communists. And in 1970, I got married to uh, Ginny, and she was fascinated with the Arab stuff that I'd been doing. And when I told her about the frankincense, she decided we would find this city where the camels were loaded with sacks of frankincense before going 900 miles up north to the desert. So down in Dofar, Mm. but on the most northerly edge where there would be the last water, and we would fill the water up, they would, of the 500 camels in a caravan of incense. So they would have water from the most northerly place we could find water. And so Ginny decided that it would make sense... That we could look for the city at a place where water was in the desert, but just on the
0: edge. Do you know why, this is a a strange question, I think, really considering your life, but do you know why Ginny wanted to do that so much? Because when you think about going into the middle of the desert in the most desolate corner of the world because someone proposed that there was a lost city... It's a very rare breed of person that sits down and goes, no, we're going to go and find that. And we're going to go and plan and sacrifice months and years, decades of our lives to to go and try and find this. Do you know what it was about her and your, your, your psychology
1: that wanted to do that so much? Yeah, I mean, when you say decades, we're talking about 26 years from the moment she started planning to look for it to when we eventually did find it in 1992 or whatever it was. And it took many, many expeditions. Eight expeditions. And on the fifth expedition, I just got fed up and said, Ginny, we're never going to find it. And she said, yeah, yeah, we must keep keep at it. And on the eighth, through luck, not cleverness, not NASA. um, When you say NASA. Well, we did use NASA. We got NASA involved in Mm. flying along that particular and taking photographs. But we only NASA helped by finding where it wasn't. They <laughs> right, found okay. places where it wasn't. Because that, that machine- didn't didn't help find it. One day in our base camp, which was the most northerly water that we could find, caused by a meteorite which had opened up. And I knew about this place called Shusa because I'd used it when I was blocking the Soviets back in sixty eight. Um So, yeah, that's why I thought it would be the best place to use as a base for our searches into the desert because it was the most northerly water for us.
0: Well, one one thing that immediately comes to mind when you talk about NASA there is I I just would have thought that if you had the capability to take satellite images and map it, surely you would be able to see where this...
1: Well, that's why we wanted to use NASA, but they didn't. So what did they bring to the table when they must have given you images? Don't bother looking there because we've flown over there and there was nothing there. Wow. The tracks, which some Arabs had seen, including the Nashran, led in a certain direction. And in the 50s, a friend of the old sultan, Wendell Phillips, his American oil man, had persuaded the sultan to look along the tracks, etc. But he found nothing and uh, we found nothing all all those 26 years. But we always searched outwards and northwards from the space mm-hmm. which I'd established at Shissa. There were about 10 Arabs who lived there on and off. <coughs> um, on the eighth expedition, we were just coming back from two months of searching back to our base in Mm Shissa, we had water. And um, Ginny and I were sitting on one side of a boulder, or might have been a stone shack, and out of the sun, and not knowing that the two Ministry of Heritage people sent to watch us and to watch the American film team who were making a film called The Search for the Lost City was a good title because they knew that if we didn't find it they could still make a film mm-hmm. of an area where they would be forbidden to film in by the Sultan. But for the fact that it was he was hoping that the Lost City would be found in his country, not in Saudi over the border tourism. Mm-hmm. And um yeah, so Ginny and I were sitting there, she said, Shush just round the corner these two ministry guys who are like in the old day the KGB people Russian you know, you'd have in tourist guides attached to you, and these guys were watching every move. And Ginny said, "Listen, she spoke good Jabali and basically what they said was these guys are just using archaeology and looking for a city as an excuse to make films all round here." And I said, "Is that what they said?" She said, "Yeah." I said, "Well, they'll tell the minister of heritage, who will tell the sultan, and we'll be out just like that." Mm. So I rushed to the archaeologist, the best in, in, the, best in the Middle East, Yuri Zarin's from Missouri University. And I said, Yuri, I know you haven't found anything, as always, but we have got to find something quick or at least dig. Yeah. And he said, well, you know, we're in the base camp. We can't dig. And I said, well, what about all that um, rubble around the meteorite site where we get the water from right here? And he laughed and he, he said, "Well, some French archaeologists three years ago did look there, and it's the wrong period." And um, so, I said, "Yuri, we will be thrown out. Dig." So he got the team of mostly teenage blondes from Missouri University, who don't weren't paid, but they dig where Yuri says. Right. And Yuri said, "Dig round." you know, where the rubble is down there. And within two days, they were finding bits of Persian chess set 2,000 years old. You're joking. And within two months, they were beginning to find the outline of a a wall. And, um, yeah, we located the lost city after 26 years of looking for it, thanks to Ginny's determination, not NASA.
0: My God. I just, I mean, firstly, so that it was right by your base camp. We
1: had been hundreds of miles looking for mm. something, which was at the base camp.
0: I think one of the reasons why that story stuck with me so much is because I just try and imagine being in your shoes. And I try and imagine being in your mentality where you've gone the first time, you've taken the cars out, you've gone across the world, you've searched,
1: nothing. Second time, nothing. Third, fourth, fifth, No, on, on the fifth, it wasn't exactly nothing. We found a pillar, mm. um out in the sand dunes, and champagne bottles came out. We found it. Two months, two weeks, I think, of digging, nothing. And Yuri was saying, you know, wind blows the sand over everything. Mm. Why didn't it blow it over this pillar? And on all our polar expeditions, the enemy are Norwegians. (laughs) Archeology span in the desert, Mm. uh, the opposition were Saudi people, Mm who hired German archeologists and Yuri knew Helmut. And he said, what they've done is they've got this pillar, hired a helicopter, dropped it off where they know we're obviously going. You're joking just to- And keep us um, Mm. focused in the wrong place that year. And so I was just so disheartened. I said to Ginny, that was on the fifth attempt, uh, we're going to give up. And that's when she said, no, we're not. She was uh
0: she was a determined person, wasn't she? She was. Yeah. That's, that's serious perseverance and I think it's something that I've I think everyone listening to that story is just is gonna be so inspired by that mentality of just never, ever, ever giving up She did speak good Arabic. Mm. She learned slowly, yeah. When you were um in this new chapter, if you will, of your life and, and expeditions become um, what you set your mind onto naturally you know you are the i think the um it's the the greatest living explorer charted by the guinness world records
1: and well that was back in 84 1984 i had the greatest number of exploration records mm-hmm. uh, mccartney had sold the greatest number of records mm. so that's how they judged it back then and
0: what what was the um what was the trigger for you when the idea of
1: circumnavigating the globe was when when Well I got around? married to Jenny in nineteen seventy mm. having left Arabia. And um she I wasn't making any money. Um I applied to the SAS in Hereford to um get money from the territorial SAS. Mm-hmm. It's called R Squadron. There's only 16 people in it, and people who go into it have to take the regular course all over again. Right. The selection, not you don't take the territorial SAS course, you take the actual regular one for R Squadron. And the boss, um, who was also, because they're civilians, obviously, he was ex-SAS regular, and he was the boss of Bulma Cider in Hereford. mm mm-hmm. Um, Gilbert Smith uh, major, and he said, when I applied, he said, but you're the bloke that, that, that years ago caused us all that trouble. And I said, yeah, but I've matured since then. And he said, well, we're, we're not taking you on as an officer, which is much more pay, and I was after pay, right? because Ginny was uh, Scottish National Trust, didn't get much money. Mm-hmm. And um, he said, well, we'll take you on as a trooper if you pass the course again, which I did. So I spent a year back with the SAS again, um, constantly being reminded by Sergeant Majors, don't let him get near your explosives. (laughs) And, um, but it was okay. And I did the jungle training, which I just missed out on all those years before. Mm. And we made a bit of money, but not captain's money. So he, they said, well, after a year, we'll look at it again for promotion. And they did, and it was corporal, not captain. So I therefore joined the London SAS, who are territorial, and spent the next 16 years with them. And Ginny knew that if we were going to do the first ever journey around Earth vertically, Mm. like we'd have to... Shackleton, Scott, they had the Royal Navy. We'd have to have some governmental uh, place and use their barracks headquarters. But
0: just to just to jump in in that bit, why? What was it about Ginny that woke up
1: one day and said, we're going to go and go around? we well, want to make a living. You know, the Scottish national... What a way tried to, to f- decide to make a living. It's- well, we'd done adventure training mm. in the army to keep the Scots from beating each yeah. other up. And that was paid for by the taxpayer. Mm. This, with your wife, wasn't. So we needed a government base. We needed an office in London. We knew that we would need... Uh, 2,000 sponsors, mm. not not two sponsors, 2,000 different sponsors. We knew that everything we would need for this, including an ice-strengthened ship, including we, we wouldn't fly one metre of the 52,000 miles. We'd, we'd keep on the earth or the sea or whatever got in the way. And uh, we'd follow the zero from Greenwich, going like that, crossing the bottom, up the top, through the Northwest Passage, over the top and back to Greenwich again. Never done at all, ever, with obstacles on the route which had been tried and failed, just bits, mm-hmm. you know, like to the North Pole or yeah. from the North Pole or the Northwest Passage had never been gone through before in an open boat. And uh, she planned all this off a map and um, we had to get sponsored. So we went to the government... Uh, because I knew that the SAS in London, in Sloane Square, just beside Sloan Square, had a perfect barracks, mm. because by then I had switched from Hereford to being a captain in 21 SAS, the London SAS, who'd forgotten about all my behaviour before. And so I went to the HQ of all the SAS, mm. which was also in Sloane Square, and I went to the boss man, uh, Peter de la Um, and I said, we would like the SAS to sponsor us, to let us have an office here uh, and a telephone and parking uh, for as long as it takes to organize this. And they conferred with one another and they said, we've decided that we will only sponsor you uh, as an SAS project um, because of your behavior in the past if we can put the officer who's now a brigadier who threw you out of the SAS, in charge of your expedition. Right. Which Jenny said that would be all right. Mm. Um, he became a very good friend. And um, yeah, so we spent seven years unpaid, except when we were doing territorial army stuff, in that barracks, selecting people and getting 1,900 sponsors. I'm trying to...
0: Again, whenever I listen to your stories, I, I try and put myself back to that time because you say we began to plan this. And you say that fairly nonchalantly, but back in that time, we're not, there were no GPSs. There were areas of the earth that hadn't even been mapped. You didn't even know what you were going to face.
1: How did you even, when you say you planned it, what did you pick, pick up a map from the library and draw a line? around? <laughs> well, you're saying there's no GPS, no sat-nav, no, no sat-phone. But there was the same system as Shackleton had used only, I don't know, 60 years before. He was Royal Navy sponsored and all that. But with the army, uh, we had a good basis and we were all good at navigating in unknown areas, not necessarily as cold as this one would be. But Mm. um, nonetheless, I mean, Antarctica had never been crossed by a single team from one side to the other by any route. Uh, Sir Vivian Fuchs, who was on the board of, who became on the board, good friend of Ginny's, uh, had done the first crossing but with two teams joining at the pole mm. not a single team mm. going right the way across which was Ginny's plan we would need a ship because the sea gets in the way also the to the atlantic and the mid, mid, the um, pacific mm. so um for we're a million pound ship we uh, got a guy called anton bowering And he became co-leader with Ginny and me of the entire expedition. And he managed to get Barring Insurance and Marsh McLennan to get a 40-year-old Norwegian ice-strengthened ship. So I delegated everything to do with the ocean bits to Anton in the office, the SAS office. Ginny took over every form of communication which was vital. Mm. There were no uh, satellites over the polar regions. That's why there was no GPS and Morse code, so she joined the territorial signals in Hammersmith and became the world's polar expert for um, antenna theory and frequency prediction. She was better than Marconi. Mm. You know, She was trained by the Territorial Army Royal Signals for four years and the Merchant Marine for two years, as well as planning and everything else. So that's how we attacked the problem. The Foreign Office said, no, you're not allowed in Antarctica to cross during the winter. So we said, okay, during the winter, we'll stay for eight months in a cardboard hut on the edge. So she invented huts very light made of cardboard because there's no rain. Cardboard huts here wouldn't last long.
0: I remember, I'm going to have to um,
1: bring up a picture. Do you have one here? No, but that man, Charlie Burton in fur, He's standing in front of the hut. That's this one here. Yeah, he's standing in front of the cardboard hut. You can't see the cardboard hut, but he is standing in front of it. Well,
0: I, I, I remember um, I remember the picture that you showed me before.
1: You can take before photos. So. take Any day. photographs here you can photograph.
0: Well, because like, I remember very vividly a um, slide that you showed me with the cardboard hut. And, and again, I'll, I'll get a picture up so people can
1: see it. The basis was that... In in England, it would last a week mm. because of the rain. But out there, there is no rain. It's just frozen. And the snow quickly comes up and covers it and gives you insulation.
2: Mm.
0: And you stay there in this hut for eight, a period eight of months. eight months. Well, she
1: was there longer because mm. she was with the radio. But she had a companion. who There's a picture of the companion up at the top there.
0: We'll have to get we'll have to get the, the snaps of the Jack
1: That'll Russell be. dog. Yeah, no, th- th- that dog actually became um, the only dog ever to have peed on both poles. <laughs> yeah.
0: I wonder what goes through your mind when you're isolated to that extent, when you're in a hut in the middle of nowhere and it's freezing cold, and you're there for eight months. How do you keep yourself mentally
1: sustained? Well, there's there's four of you. There's the radio operator, my wife, um, who is doing very complicated scientific work uh, into the ionosphere for people like Sheffield University. Uh, She was later awarded by the Queen the only female ever to get the Polar Medal. Um, The all-male Arctic club, who certainly wouldn't take women, uh, decided, voted that they would vote her as the first woman member for what she'd done um, and continued to do in the Arctic and so on and so forth. Very difficult work, which mm. took up a lot of her time to answer your question. Um, she had to get back to the sponsor, media sponsor, the Observer, as it was, uh, with reports, very often Morse code. She managed to get voice communications with Portis Radio in Somerset, who got special ways of speaking uh, on the telephone network back then, which mm-hmm. was unheard of, to ships like the Queen Elizabeth. That's what they were set up for. Mm-hmm. She managed to get into that lot, um, which is amazing. And uh, then there was Charlie Burton from South Africa. Remember, we'd chosen them out of thousands of applicants over seven years, the, mm-hmm. the two that were there. And Ollie Shepherd, who had never been on an expedition, we chose him. Um, even though he his job had been for seven nine years, uh, selling Whitbread products in Chelsea,
0: and uh, I have to naturally ask you, how how on earth do you go about choosing someone who has no experience with expeditions, and you make the decision that you're going to live with that
1: person in a cardboard hut in the Arctic for, because yeah. of their character. Physical stuff, you can test them and train them in Wales, which we did over the seven years, and you make them join the SAS, which in itself gets rid of people who are not on the on the ball. And so we chose... We, we knew we'd need two, but we had three. We couldn't choose which to get rid of. Um So, so
0: you made them join the SAS purely... Yes. purely for wow. Okay. Yeah,
1: well, the SAS mm. were giving us all their yeah, offices 100%. and everything. And they had as you've asked they had no polar experience before we do the expedition we have to give them polar expedi- experience mm. i told you the sultan sponsored one of our training expeditions mm. in greenland and the raf because they were all ta flew them free with snow machines and things out and uh out there we first of all had me and the south african charlie burton and ollie shepherd the beer salesman And the other one who had been in printing works in London, Jeff. And um, basically in Greenlands, we only got to minus 25 out on the ice cap and they all held up fine. Mm. So Ginny and I favoured different ones to get rid of. Uh, I wanted to keep Jeff Newman, the printer. She didn't. Uh, We all liked him, but, you know... So we had another training run. We'd done Greenland, which is like Antarctica. Mm-hmm. We had to do the actual North Pole area for the North Pole area. And that got us down to minus 48. And one of them, the three, couldn't take 45 below. It's just the way you're built mm. physically. He's a wonderful character. So he was the one that we got rid of, um, Jeff, ending up with Charlie Burton, who's in the fur in that picture, and uh, Ollie Shepard, the beer salesman. And what, what uh, happened to them through the
0: period of this expedition? What was it like when you actually had to see how these people handled that real-life situation?
1: Well, we have been with them in the office in London, mm. in the SAS, for years, yeah. working in the office. But it's not quite the same thing. We'd done the two trials I've told you about mm. together, but it's not the same as eight months in a hut together. To be honest, um, they were all very, very busy the World Metrological Organization, WMO, has all over the world people that report into the system as to the weather six times a day. Mm. We were in an area where the WMO had nobody for 500 miles reporting. So it was a sort of wound in their method of forecasting mm-hmm. on the BBC or whatever. And we put this right, because Ginny was doing ionosphere all this time with specialist equipment and anemometers Ollie Shepherd was not doing beer cells. He was doing what he'd been taught, and he was the only one of us who had O-levels. So he, if there was anything complicated, Ollie would be, you know, we would need someone that could take out our appendix for eight months if somebody had appendicitis. Mm-hmm. And Ollie had been trained by the army, well, the SAS, to take out appendix in, in a cardboard hut. Uh, he'd been two months trained, uh, dental training at Chelsea Barracks okay. from the SAS. So we we had what we could to do bad things, if pessimistic work, mm. so everybody was very busy. If the snow huts in which you're living, the cardboard huts and the tunnels that you've built to store kit, mm. um, you've got to get out somewhere and the snow's constantly coming up. Mm-hmm. And we knew that the previous winter, uh, the six Russians at Novolazskaya base, when they'd been relieved, they found all their bodies scrambling to get out because they hadn't unblocked the snow every day. Right. So every day I would be at the end of the exits of all the huts. Jenny's scientific hut, the very low-frequency hut, Oliver's uh, generator Shall we be repairing the generators that kept the electricity going... Mm. And Jenny's radio hut with the antenna outside it all had to be kept clear every day. Mm. And I was doing that, you know, simple enough job for me to do. When you
0: say that historically in that situation where the Russian team were trying to get out, what had happened? That was a fire inside?
1: They had a fire and they rushed to get out because of the fumes. Mm. And they were all fumigated trying to get out Mm. at the end of the hut. So their bodies were all removed before the next six came in. And the next six presumably did keep the entrances clear. Yeah, We that. certainly did, or I certainly yeah. did. But I have to say that I lived up one end of the cardboard hut with my wife. Mm-hmm. And the two blokes lived up the other end of the hut with the Jack Russell. So yeah. I was fine. Good.
0: <laughs> I just think it's, it's, it's hard to, uh, when I think about all the things you've done, it's hard to... And we'll talk about where some things went wrong um, and where you made your, you know, one of your mistakes, as you say. Um, But it's
1: hard to imagine that you guys managed to survive all of this. We did that complete first ever crossing of Antarctica Mm. and uh, the ship came in on the other side. Wonderful to see them again. They dropped us off 18 months before on Mm. one side. When we came out the other side um, and the ship came in, it it was just... uh, remarkable and but we were only less than halfway on Junior's plan mm. all the way around what was your question <laughs>
0: i just think it wasn't really a question it was just to to really take a moment to to just think about how insane incredible and and beautiful that must have been to to actually succeed in doing that because am i right that that process took
1: nine years by the time we finished everything, mm. we'd had seven years planning it mm-hmm. and training, three years doing it to, the, mm. to within the day, and then eighteen months to pay back some little debts where we could, where the people in London, our office volunteers, mm. hadn't managed to keep the one hundred percent sponsorship basis. Our rule, Jenny and me, was never, like never, pay anybody anything for anything at any time. <laughs> And while we were away for three years, the volunteers, you know, Ginny would be, you must get two ladders to the next place where we'll be in a year's time. Well, they couldn't get, the ladders were free, but the transport, they might have paid something. Mm -hmm. So although the expedition would have cost 29 million pounds, Anton worked it out, including the ship. Um, When we got back, we were very annoyed with the volunteers because there was 160,000 pounds to be paid back.
0: I've got to ask, what makes you. Is there any correlation when you consider the people that were doing this? Because they were fundamentally volunteering their time, doing something extremely dangerous, risking their lives, um, and not being paid. And that must be a
1: very rare
0: breed of human that would be willing to do
1: something. That's right. And during the seven years, they'd been doing that period without being paid too not just the period of the expedition. Mm. And Anton, who looked after the ship, uh, when the expedition finished and everybody went back, the the ship had people from nine countries, Mm. none paid, on board. And um, Anton did all that. We passed everything to him. And when we got back, Anton stayed for two years after the expedition, hoping to get to selling mock botties at lectures and that sort Mm. of stuff to make 160 six thousand pounds to pay back two two years after it finished so yeah. if you add that together seven plus three plus two you get to 12 years of his life unpaid wow and then we moved on to other expeditions and he stayed with us he's, he's a wonderful bloke you can say that again and uh, and
0: i obviously have to ask you about your um the incident with your fingers can you Can you bring me into what this expedition was uh, trying to achieve and then the mistake that fundamentally happened that meant you had to...
1: That particular expedition in the um, either 90s or early 2000s was a bad mistake and I shouldn't have even tried it because by then uh, when Charlie Burton died after Transglobe because he was the one that continued... Mm -hmm um after antarctica ollie the bear salesman had to drop out for family reasons Mm -hmm. but he came on later expeditions in the 90s again but um yeah mike stroud dr mike stroud took over as my companion when charlie burton died and forgive me how did he die he smoked too much but he got i think he had a heart attack but it basically he smoked too much right Okay. On that Trans Globe expedition, Ollie Shepard, the beer salesman, got sponsorship from um, cigarette company Marlborough Lights right. with the five 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 thousand five hundred fifty five thousand cigarettes for oh. three years for fifty two people on the ship and mm-hmm. all that. And when we got back, we had eighteen thousand left. Customs took them at Greenwich. Um, where have I got to? I was to- oh, I know that expedition was a mistake mm. because it was a solo expedition all the other expeditions, there's two of us or more. And -hmm. for 30 years, it's been one doctor called Mike Stroud, and he's a wonderful guy. And um, yeah, he realized that to break that next record against the rivals, the Norwegians, Mm -hmm. nobody had at that stage managed to reach the North Pole unsupported solo. Mm -hmm. It had been done by Norwegians or they said they had done it. We had a slight problem. Right. Um, they said they had done it unsupported, but but three of them set out and only two reached the pole. So a ski plane must have removed one, and that means not unsupported, Right. which we explained at the RGS, Mike Stroud and I did. But let's get over that. It had never been done solo. So whether or not their claim was correct or not, By doing it solo, Mm. we keep one jump ahead of them. And if you keep one jump ahead, you get sponsored because the media cover you. Mm -hmm. You make a lot of money for charity. so. And it's worth noting that um, at that point, it was about uh,
0: between 15, 20
1: million that you'd raised, somewhere in that ballpark? No, at that stage, when we were doing the solo, it was back to about 14 million. Now it's 18.9 million. Wow. But back then it was 14. Anyway, so... Mike Stroud planned, gave me all the medical knowledge I would need to treat myself. Mm-hmm. Whereas with gangrene and that previous expeditions, Mike had dealt with the gangrene and with his own problems as well. And when you say dealt with the gangrene- you Well, talking... stabbed, get yep. rid of the poison and all that sort Jeez. of stuff. And then um, given you painkillers and all that. Yeah, Because he was a doctor, yeah, a very, very yeah. good doctor. Yeah. And he was had been the director of the British Army APRE, Army Personnel Research Establishment. Mm. He was in charge of making soldiers suffer to extremes, um, taking over from the Germans doing that with the Polish prisoners. Mm. But the Polish prisoners would die. Mike wasn't allowed to let British Army soldiers at Farnborough die in their experiments. And they would be paid extra for running faster in cold temperatures or hot temperatures. And he was really very, very good at knowing what the human body could survive and mm-hmm. very interested in it. And a lot of his scientific work um, was uh, top-level stuff. And in the university booklets or whatever, you'll see what he wrote. And um, Based on what is the absolute extreme that the human body that, can survive. That's borrow. right. And when we were really suffering, he'd be taking your blood and keeping samples and so on and so forth. Right. And when in the mid-90s, um, a Canadian magazine said that all finds as expeditions have no scientific results. We sued them in the High Court with a jury of 12 in London and they had to pay a hundred thousand pounds. That it wasn't very difficult. One of our scientific reports from one expedition was 500 pages. The fact that I'm not a scientist, we take scientists with us and they do all the stuff they want. So, uh, and
0: just so I'm kind of getting my lineage right, th- this traversing which was
1: done solo yeah how was he able to um no the solo expedition mm. which i'm talking about and introducing in a rather slow manner right to explain why we did it was because it hadn't been done by the norwegians mm. or anybody else and it was the only polar north polar one that hadn't yeah so that's why we did it and we knew from past experience mike and i became experts at an umbil- umbilical cord Right, we could recognise crevasse territory where no one else could through experience. Soon as we recognised it, we stopped and fixed a 100-metre rope up. Then we went in mm-hmm. and fell in, but never at the same time, because you've got 100 metres between you. Mm-hmm. And the one that's fallen in is then dragged out. It oh doesn't die, which you very often would do if you couldn't get yourself out of a crevasse. Yeah, So... I'd save his life; he'd save my life. Think nothing of it. But we, that's how we succeeded so many times on so many expeditions. But in the Arctic, it's not the same. There aren't any crevasses. There's thin ice, and you can't keep stopping and taking. You never get there. You run out of food, mm-hmm. so you have to risk going on ice, which is dicey. Yeah. So but how? But how does that hundred meters? I mean, God, that makes my makes. The, my... the answer is a hundred meters. So you're towing a heavy sledge. Yeah and you've got skis on. So when you fall in with skis on, okay, you can imagine you're not gonna be able to undo them. And the ice is all around you. You've fallen in through a hole, that sort of thing. So we got very good at rescuing the other one with the same 100-meter rope. Mm -hmm. So low, not good up there. And one night, minus 45 to minus 48, dark because although it was full moon, Um, and that's why I was traveling, clouds covered the full moon, so the advantage of the light wasn't there. But what I'd failed, which wouldn't have been the case if Mike had been there, he would have reckoned it out, the full moon made the tide come right up and the ice broke, of course, Mm -hmm. on the surface. And I'm traveling on the ice. So it's a huge crackling noise. You're at night because it's dark. It's very, very cold. And I realized that the flow, the ice flow, because they're all different, they're old or new, three-year-old multi-year flows growing at six foot a year, yeah, are much tougher. So they don't break up as easily as the majority of first-year or second-year ice. And I was on first-year ice. It was breaking up everywhere, and I was frightened. I was towing a sledge heavier than me. And I saw ahead by the light of my torch, which had a battery right inside here, um, that the flow, if I could get onto it, was multi safe. But the one I was on was breaking up mm-hmm. and moving apart. And I'm here moving apart from the safety of the safe one to the north. Mm-hmm. So I saw that between the two, there was broken ice blocks, a, a bridge of blocks floating about 10 foot high. So I thought I'll get over that. So I'm o- over this narrow bridge of block ice. The sledge falls in 10 feet into the sea. And I'm dragged backwards. So I hit the quick release button. Yeah. Which means I'm no longer attached to my livelihood, Mm -hmm. tent, anything, everything, cooker. Because at this point, Mm -hmm. that is everything. So the fact that you've had to detach and you've let that go. Well, there's only one of you. The other, if there's two, you've got two tents, you know. Uh, Anyway, I'd let it go so that I didn't immerse. But then I had to quickly get it out. Mm. It was here and the the rope to my body was lying in the water, but ice blocks were falling in. So I had to go down this blocks of moving ice on my stomach sort of thing to grab it. But I couldn't grab it there because it was here. I had to grab it there with my left hand because it was here and the ropes were there. So if it had been the other way around, I would have used my right hand to pull it out.
2: Mm.
1: So yes. sheer luck, because if my right hand had gone, Um, I'd be useless, I am useless with the sound anyway. But um, yeah, so I pulled it out by getting one hand wet and then I had a hell of a struggle, but it was my life to quickly get it up 10 feet onto the proper flow, put a tent up with one hand because this one had gone and this one was going rapidly. So luckily I'd practiced this, I knew exactly what to get I had to get the tent, the poles, the cooker, sleeping bag, and the match tin. That's it. Really, really quickly. But the tent, you have to put the poles into the sleeves of, of the tent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And I only managed with that hand to do it once. I then got the other items I've just told you about into the tent. And the tent was only half up because it only had one pole through it. But it was at least... Wind-free. And I had to really quickly get the cooker going, you know, Mm -hmm. to get the petrol in thing and then light it uh, in the semi-dark because this thing had run out. And uh, I was in a hurry, pumped, couldn't work because I only had one hand to hold it. So I put it in my mouth and pumped, smelt the petrol, thought that should be enough, put it down, managed to get the tin lid undone, with hardly any feeling left lit the cooker, and I had got enough more than enough petrol into the cooker, Vumph in Jeez. the semi semi erected tent, fire on the inner sleeping bag oh put put the fire out, cloud of feathers everywhere, not uh, the best moment of my life, and <laughs> yeah, I suppose but say that. I got life back into one hand yeah and i unloaded from the sledge everything that wasn't vital Mm. i had 100 days of food and fuel Mm. so i unloaded that litter yeah and um got back to the mainland horrible journey the mainland was an uninhabited island but but also at this point how soon was it that you realized that
0: your that your left hand had suffered as badly as it had was it instantly as soon as you put your hand in that water no
1: i thought it might recover jesus but it took too long to get it right again Mm. so it didn't recover and so to answer your question that was an error (laughs) yes yeah and
0: and tell me about the process uh, because as far as i i know and obviously thank you for welcoming me here as well i remember you saying that just just here you decided to do a self-amputation essentially he decided that yeah
1: um in that tool shed there mm. um well i remember sending a message back from montreal hospital mm. ppp insurance would only pay for an am- uh, amputation yeah. amputation if it was done in england
2: mm-hmm.
1: not in canada where the experts of frostbite are right. stupid so came back here found a maltese surgeon in bristol who was an expert at burnt fingers and he said that's the same as frostbitten right. fingers, give or take and um he said whatever's wrong with your fingers we do not amputate until five months after it's happened because the dead bits these bits here which are mummified. Mm end where dead stuff hits live nerves does that make sense yeah i'm with you yeah because after five months the semi damaged stuff which will be made into the new ends on the shortened fingers will have recovered five months right so i'm afraid you're going to have to put up with don't touch anything because it'll be agony but you know you can't not touch uh, sleep at night and so on Mm. and um when dogs have th- things they mustn't touch, you put lampshades on the, yeah, but you can't do that with your hands, sort of mm. thing. Anyway, I I get back to here, mm-hmm. and um, she said I was getting irritable. I'm not normally an irritable person, right? B- because of you know, she said you know you can't wait another three months. Why don't we do what I do to the cattle, with clippers, if if where you cut the hoof. It hurts them in the in the crush, um, or it bleeds. You just move further away mm-hmm. into the dead area. Makes good sense. Then you haven't got these long things sticking out all over the place. Yeah. So we bought a black and decker workbench and a fret saw. It wasn't a fret saw, it's much thinner than that. It's a very, very thin saw. Mm-hmm. And she brought me cups of tea. That thumb took me two days to get through because of the bone. And Jeez. I got rid of all of them. Two days, you were yeah. just slowly taking a little bit off. Moving and then, and then turning the... it and doing it like you would wood, turning it and yeah. do that bit. Yeah. But, but in the black and decker, it can't move. So, yeah, didn't really hurt. But I could not get rid of them because I'd had them for over 60 years. When you say you get rid of them, you are talking about your the cut off ends, yeah. yeah. So you still uh,
0: have the cut off ends of your fingers. I have four of them. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it just doesn't bear thinking about that. You that again, just the testament to
1: your to your will. It needed to be done, and you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to me, they were part of of me. You mm-hmm. know, so um, like ashes onto ashes, sort of thing. Yeah, we were finishing the fingers. Yeah.
0: Yeah, literally finishing the fingers you know there's there's so many things that i wanted to talk with you about on this podcast and i just think that there probably isn't enough time uh in the world but one thing as we as we start to thinking about wrapping up is the story about your fears and especially how that played into your idea about trying to conquer them with your climbing because oh yeah we haven't
1: talked about climbing well you told
0: me um, you told me a couple of years back that you had a couple of
1: fears in your life and right. right? it was important
0: to you to try and overcome those fears.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was set off by Ginny dying uh, after 36 years of marriage and 10 years before that. Um, and I here just became wimpish and desolate, you know. I'd go up to Ginny's cattle up the top and sort of sit with them and that, and I was doing absolutely nothing at all, and I thought after about a year i've I've got to get out of this um moping situation and do something meaningful and what is meaningful is to attack real phobias to beat a real mm. phobia i I had um two i one was spiders. I got brought up in South Africa, and in the mornings before school, I used to draw my mum's curtains. And one morning, aged about six, a South African spider jumped on my pyjama backs and bit me. And I think that was probably what gave me this horrible fear of spiders. that would do it. I think that'll do it. Well, aged 11, we came back, when my South African granny died, to Mm. England. And I was frightened even of little English spiders. Mm. And um, this is pretty stupid. But that, I had lost that phobia through forced confrontation in Arabia, because when I joined my Arabs for the first time, and they knew for three years this guy was going to look after them, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and we sat down as they do for supper in the sand with the fire and the goat meat and that, Mm -hmm. and this seven inch camel spider came over my knee, and I would have screamed and s- smashed it. Right. But I knew that they are not frightened. And if they so thought this new like... boss. So I was more frightened of losing their yeah respect. respect than I was of the spider. But I was terrified. So I sort of grinned <laughs> and, and it sort of went. And over the next two years plus in the desert, they're in your sleeping bag. They never bit you. Oh, God. And I slowly yeah. lost the fear. Yeah. So now, the other one, which is much worse, real terror of, of uh, heights. Um, I mean, here, if the leaves and the gutters in autumn, mm. I would hold the ladder bottom and send my wife up to. To be fair, to we are quite ladder.
0: high up here, so I could see I Yeah, 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 thank you very much.
1: Yeah. And. Uh, well, is that an argument that you and your wife have? Then? She's like. Who's going to go up life. the ladder? <laughs> right, gotcha. No, um, I really was frightened. So I thought, mm. how do I cure it well the answer into my head because i'm not a climber was everest right i mean if you get up everest you you must lose your fear of heights so you think okay
0: i'm scared of heights what's the way of conquering it face the biggest demon yeah run at it so you decided to climb everest without any climbing experience
1: you know and in doing so i would have to lose my fear or confront Mm it the the year before Jenny died, uh, a black friend of mine, Sibu Sisu from South Africa, mm. had asked me to climb Everest because he was the first black man ever to climb the Nepal side, mm-hmm. and he wanted to be the first from both sides. So I said, no, I get um, vertigo. But then when Jenny, when this happened, a year later, I said, Sibu, I've changed my mind. I would like to come with you from Tibet. Mm. So they, Jagged Globe, that guides, made... Me, do a two-week course in Alps just to see if you could do rope work, mm-hmm. and then a ten-day course with them in Ecuador. There's volcanoes there, mm-hmm. um, Quito. They get bigger and bigger, and the, the top one is over twenty thousand, Chimborazo and Cotopaxi. So they they're just walking up, you know. Mm-hmm. But if you can get to the top then they'll know that you're not one of these people that at 16,000 feet, yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Everybody won't know until they get to a certain height whether they'll be all right, mm-hmm. even Hillary. And um, so I said to him, I've changed my mind. We did all the training. And on the very last night at 28,500 feet, mm-hmm. he got to the top. I got a heart attack on a rope in the dark with my Sherpa just above me. And... Uh, So I reached it like a a warning. So when you say I I reached for the GTN, which I I'd had a previous heart attack um, at Bristol Airport, and spent three days on a machine in NHS BR Bristol Royal Infirmary, um, three days unconscious, Jenny watching me, and um, I they gave me a double bypass. Right, okay. And I woke up three days later and Ginny mm-hmm. said, three days ago you had a heart attack. I can't remember it. Still can't. Anyway, and now it, this is it, happening r- it recurred again um, on Everest at the top. So the Sherpa managed very cleverly to get me down and three days later I reached the base camp and the doctor said, can I see your pills? And All I right. gave him the bottle and he said, no, no, the pills. And I said, well, I obviously took the pills. He said, yeah, but there were 80 and you took how many? And I said, well, I took what was ever in there. He said, well, you're allowed two. And I foamed into the- um...
0: Into the mark, because of course you're on oxygen, aren't you?
1: When you're... Yeah, 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 yeah. with a bottle and everything. I mean, you're on a rope, and you're trying to find a, a bottle of pills in 16 pockets with harnesses and mitts. Up the side of a mountain. And by the time on. I found them, I really panicked and took and you them. you just decked the whole lot. Yeah. It? Anyway, I said to the doctor, well, don't worry, I'm never coming back, <laughs> never coming back. And he said, don't be silly. You've raised two million pounds by doing this for multiple sclerosis. Try what again. Do you
0: mean, don't be silly. So I could just add to, try
1: again on the other side. It's much easier. Right, the Nepal side is far easier. So um, that was two thousand and five. That's pretty intense advice. Yeah, man. that was two thousand and five. Two thousand and seven. Mm. In order to gradually get the vertigo, which I hadn't on the first time, because on Everest that side there, there are no actual drops. Yeah. except at night when you can't see them. And so I went back and tried again on the easy side, saw too many bodies, including the body of my Sherpa. You're joking. And what, l- the- at the buttress, which is only four hours from the summit, right? near where they took that photograph in all the papers. Mm-hmm. And so twice failed, once on both sides. Marie Curie by then, not multiple sclerosis, said, uh, look, if you do it again in 2009... Um, having done uh, the other side and that, and, and take a really good Sherpa makes all the difference. Mm. So in 2009, I was an old age pensioner. So I became the first OAP to do it. And so we got much more money for the charity because mostly from older people, five quid. you know. And uh, that's why we're nearly up to 18.9. Well, we are up to, not 20. So that time with Tundu Sherpa, who didn't treat you like a tourist, he treated you like a person and watches what you're doing wrong. Mm -hmm. And he knew that I'd nearly got to the top twice. So he knew that what I was doing wrong was near the top. And he stopped me and he said, you keep trying to keep up with me. Don't. Every time you want to stop, stop. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about the oxygen level. Right. And it was dead easy. Once, Once I was doing what he said, it was deady. I couldn't work out why I made such a mistake twice. Anyway, we got up to the top, and I still hadn't seen a drop. So I still hadn't... The whole purpose was to... Overcome ...charity, it. Yeah, but yeah. lose yeah. the... Th- so um, Kenton Cool, who's been up 14 times, his best guide in Britain, said, Look, Ran, I can get rid of your vertigo on a proper mountain where it's climbing, not walking. Mm-hmm. Everest is walking. Um... Mm-hmm. It's called the Eiger and it's got a north face of 6,000 feet and it's much cheaper to get to. I'll train you and get you there Mm -hmm. and we'll definitely lose the um, vertigo. Yeah, And And two people, Kenton Kuhl and his friend Ian Parnell, Mm. as long as they were there, the vertigo didn't come. It took three days and nights to get up this horrible wall up to the top. And at the top, I realized that I hadn't lost the vertigo. And this has killed over 60 of the world's top climbers, this particular climb. And it's terrifying. But because of these two strong people, one ahead and one behind, when they were there and I could see them, I didn't get the vertigo. So when I realised that I had got up the north face of the Iger mm. and um still had vertigo, I said I won't touch another mountain. And I haven't. <laughs> well, I, I've I've been up Antarctica's biggest one since, but that's because it's got no drops like Everest. So
0: really your your phobia with the vertigo, do you think you will ever No. Just... I won't even try. No. Good. No, it's probably a good thing. I think I, I really could talk all day and, um, and I know that we've only got a certain amount of, of space on the cameras and one thing um, that I was one thing that I wanted to ask you for people listening for people who know your story already or for people who are discovering your story when people are facing challenges in life and things that are really difficult uh, what is some advice that you could give them with everything that you've been through about how to attack the most difficult parts
1: in their journey Well, first of all, I've learned that to generalize doesn't really help. Um, But obviously, it's a good thing if you can generalize. Mm. And I would say that if you're going to do an expedition, A, don't ever do it by yourself unless you've looked at it and you know that it's not making stupid risks thereby. Always go with somebody who you know well, Don't go into dangerous areas. My advice is when you're taking on challenges, make sure that they aren't known to be very unlikely to succeed, i.e. danger, avoid danger. And the reason we as a group have succeeded to beat even the world's top polar travellers for many world records, i.e. the Norwegians, is because we study their previous attempts and failures And if they have failed, it'll be because they took a risk. Mm. So we attack projects that are known never to have been broken by not going to take a risk. Mm -hmm. You study that risk and you work out a way of going around it rather than through it. And what
0: about the mental challenges, when you're in that mental space, where you feel like you're being broken by the challenge, by the environment, is there any advice you'd give to people about how to find that inner
1: strength and... If you're by yourself, very difficult. If you're with someone else, discuss it and argue. And one of you will probably be saying, continue. And this can be not just on an expedition, but when you're in your home, thinking about the challenge, Mm. just starting to think about it. Take it sensibly when you've got a bucket list, which is what you're talking about. Don't put on that bucket list something which has killed lots of people. Um, You know, it's stupid. Mm. Go for lesser bucket list levels of endurance or challenge. Mm. I'm sorry to sound slightly negative, but that's what we've discovered after all these years. Of going for projects which sometimes we fail, sometimes we succeed, but we try desperately to avoid risk taking and what a note
0: to round up on, and just lastly before um, we go your your book cold um, i 'm going to put a link in in the description of the video so people know where to find it and and what is next for you
1: and your works and on the horizon what 's coming next and next i 'm trying to make for penguin two new biographies of people who I feel I know quite well even though I never met them. Mm -hmm. One is uh, Shackleton who is Anglo-Irish and one is Lawrence of Arabia who is Anglo-Irish also and therefore they take risks more than they should. (laughs) Fair play. Rand
0: thank you so much for doing this Um, thank you for welcoming me to your home.